We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome back. This is Coach Bo with the 8020 Baseball Master Class. Welcome, coaches, players, parents. Welcome to episode 58. Can't believe within the last year, about within the last year, I think our first episode was put out in December, middle December, middle early December. We are up to 58 episodes. In fact, I got my statistics for the podcast from 2020 and up until these last two episodes, at least. They're not 100% current, but I got my statistics. It's over 1,500 minutes, 1,500 minutes of podcast that I've put out this year to share with you. And almost all of it, those of you that have been listening understand, and, and you clearly see it, there's no fluff. There are some points that get a little deeper, and there's some things we dive into a little deeper, but there's no fluff. There's no commercials. There's, there hasn't been any of that. So 1,500 minutes of just learning baseball, getting better, being a better baseball coach, being a better player. So it's good to see that. And my, my goal is and what I really am passionate about and I feel like I'm called to do at this point in my life and for the foreseeable future is to help guide the baseball coaching community in a better way, especially that youth baseball coaching community that I believe is completely underserved. When you think about the millions of coaches that are out there and thinking about all those parents that are out there, all of you coaches that are youth coaches, most of you are just parents that are extremely intelligent people. I know you, the listeners of this podcast, are extremely smart people, but you're not in the coaching coaching community. It's not your thing. You are or you have a job or a career or hobbies that are outside of it. And so like we do for almost everything in our life, we try to get experts to take care of things. Like the other day, I was talking with my old man and he hired somebody. My dad's really a smart guy. I mean, he's almost 70 years old and he knows a lot about a lot of things, but even he knows and like all of us, we know we have things that we need to bring the experts in for. So my dad had an inspector come out to the house and do an inspection on his house. He has a home warranty that's about set to expire. And he wanted to bring an expert out who could really identify some things. And my dad found probably about 60% of the things that the inspector did find, but there were some couple issues that were substantial that the inspector did find down in the crawl space and up along some of the beams and some of the exterior parts of the house, especially where the roof and siding come together. So my point being is that we do, it is so great. And I think that's what's so amazing about like a free market system is that you have experts in all the areas and then the experts all work together to build whatever it is. So if you look at any great company or any great service or any great entity out there, it is usually a combination of a lot of different expertises and a lot of variety of people that are bringing their expertise to the table. And look at your jobs, look around your jobs and look at those companies that you work within and those things that you do, those services that you provide. There's a lot of expertise that got combined to make that product or that service phenomenal or good or at least customer worthy. So in this podcast, I try to condense and give you coaches, players, parents that I know are very intelligent that just don't have the time or the experience with coaching baseball, with coaching youth sports. So you come here and you look for other resources too, in addition to make you a better coach. Now, what I try to do here is try to give you an all-in-one where you don't need to do a lot of other research and a lot of other learning outside, although I definitely recommend that. What I try to do is give you enough, especially for those coaches that are going out there practicing two days a week or three days a week or less. I try to give you plenty of stuff where you 
you have more than enough stuff to go out there and coach successfully, to play successfully, to parent a youth athlete successfully. So with that said, let's get into it. In episode 58 here, we are going to get into part two of the interview that I did with Rob Tong over at the Youth Baseball Edge podcast. And again, Rob is an extremely intelligent person, and I think he asks some extremely inquisitive questions, and I really like how he has an open-minded kind of beginner's mind when it comes to his interviewing style. And I've been listening to Rob Tong for a few years before we got together and I did the interview, so it was really nice to get on there with Rob. He does a really good job with his podcast, The Youth Baseball Edge. It is an interview-based podcast and interview-based format, so it's different than what we're doing here, although I did promise that in 2021, I'm going to bring on some big-time, game-changing interviews. I'm not going to go really big on interviews because I feel like with the Youth Baseball Edge with Rob Tong and some of the others, they do a great job of already covering those and interviewing enough people. So you don't, I believe the Youth Baseball Coaching Community doesn't need any more interviewing podcasts or interview-style podcasts. So that's why we do the podcast the way we do it here, curating and creating knowledge and content for you all really quickly. Speaking of quickly, let's get into it here. I am going to pass it over to Rob and Rob is interviewing me and we are going to discuss some massively helpful information, strategies. First, we're going to do a deep dive, a 360 dive into the changeup, a pitch that I think a lot of coaches want to know more about. Then we're going to get into what I believe are the three key steps to training better base runners. And I'm going to share with you a great drill for training base runners to read the balls, the pass balls, the balls in the dirt, and also get your catchers better simultaneously. So I'll share that drill with you. We're going to break down the 80-20 rule with Rob, who is coincidentally somebody who knows a lot about the 80-20 principle, the 80-20 rule, and how it pertains to baseball. Lastly, we're going to talk and I'm going to share with you a great pitching drill that increases the momentum a pitcher can generate in terms of being able to get the most out of their arm while simultaneously improving their accuracy. And most importantly, it's really a trifecta. It helps maintain a healthier pitching arm because it incorporates and utilizes the lower half, the legs, combined with the use of the slope of the mound and the body weight. And the best part is the drill does not even require equipment. And I got it from the great Tom House, and I'll share that with you. Now I'm going to turn it over to Rob. And so if you've ever wondered how I structure my practice plans, you probably want to pay extra attention to this episode because in this show, Bo Ashbrainer discusses many of the things that I do when it comes to planning for practices. There are a lot of practical tips packed in this show, and I know I'm going to implement some of Bo's tips in my own practices. Spoiler alert, Bo's base running drill is one of them. And so just like I already started using Bo's infield drill, and I became a fan of having lots of buckets of baseballs after the last show with Bo, hopefully you'll also have a lot of takeaways of your own to help prepare your own team after listening to this show. So what are we waiting for? Let's roll. Here's part two of my interview with Bo Ashebrenner. So let's switch over to pitching now. Uh, you are a proponent of the changeup, but only in certain situations. So when we're talking about the youth level and the high school level, probably more the youth level, what are your thoughts on the changeup at those the youth level and the high school level? At the youth level, the changeup's a little more difficult, and there's three reasons. Hand size. The youth players are going to have smaller hands. And if you've worked with youth players, I know you have, Rob, but I mean, talking to the, the listeners, if you work with youth players, you, you see them grip the ball. Sometimes they can't grip that forcing fastball all the way. Sometimes it's a three-fingered fastball and things like that. So I think hand size plays into it for youth players. Pitching distance. I just read an article about Scherzer, and he was talking about he loves that last 10 feet for his pitches to do their thing, whether it's his slider or his changeup. And that's so important because at the youth level, the, the mound is obviously closer. And I know they're throwing slower, but as you get that mound out further, the pitch 
which especially the changeup, the physics starts to do more of its thing and it starts to slow up its velocity a little bit more. So you have the pitching round distance. It definitely makes it easier to throw a changeup when the distance expands out. And so you get to that 60 feet, six inches rather than 45 feet because sometimes you don't have that. It doesn't have the time to do its thing and slow and differentiate itself from the fastball, that being the changeup. And then you got slower bat speeds. Youth players don't have as much success with the changeup for the two reasons I just described. And then the hitters typically are going to have overall are going to have slower bat speed. Slow bat speed gets weeded out. It gets eliminated as they get to the professional game and even college baseball. And most quality varsity teams don't have really slow bats because slow bats just get eaten up by fastballs. And it makes it real easy for the pitcher. If they don't need to worry about anything, they can just throw it right by the guy, mm-hmm. you know, locate a little bit and throw it by, maybe spin one to keep them off balance. But they don't even need to get to the changeup. So if you have a kid with bigger hands, it might work. But that's partly why it doesn't work as well at the youth level as it does when you see the major league players use it, which I love the changeup. And I just think it's so hard to use at the major league level. So so how do you throw a changeup? Do you advocate like a circle change or how do you grip the your changeup? How would you recommend that? I think this is something that varies between um, pitchers. I recommend starting at least with a circle, but an open circle. Uh, the circle change is where your, your index finger and your thumb kind of connect. I like to have the thumb underneath the ball a little bit. And I think that gives a little bit a little bit better control, especially for youth players and younger players. Again, it's a feel. I know there's major leaguers that throw the circle phenomenally well. I also played with a guy in high school that led our team to the, uh, he's actually the head coach at Loyola Marymount now, and he's doing a heck of a job. It's a division one program out here in California. And he uh, <laughs> he used to throw this kind of split, kind of three-fingered split changeup, and it worked great for him. I mean, he went out there. He didn't have great velocity. The guy went 13-0 and in Southern California and won the Southern California Championship. And I think that year, that was my sophomore year, he was a senior, and I think the team finished number four or five in the entire country in high school. And he was the main pitcher throwing a three-fingered changeup. So I think it kind of just depends on what you get the best effect out of. Now, here's something I recommend, Rob, all pitchers keep in mind. And this is something I think would help all pitchers across the board. Match your changeup spin with your fastball spin. And what I mean by that is if you're a four-seam fastball guy or gal, if you throw a four-seam fastball a lot, then I recommend you stick with that four-seam changeup spin. Again, if your changeup grip is really unique, that might not work out for you. But if you can, try to match the spin. This is definitely something for major leaguers. I can't tell you. I think guys like Strasburg, Strasburg will throw a a two-seam changeup right after a four-seam fastball. And he's got a great changeup. I think it could be 5% better, 10% better, because when you match your spin, because a two-seam fastball, for youth coaches listening, two-seam fastball looks different than a four-seam fastball. Now, your youth players might not tell you that, but it does to them. And as you get to high school, those hitters at that level, especially good high school hitters, can see the difference. And when they see a pitch coming in that doesn't look like the the fastball they're they're used to seeing from that pitcher, their first reaction typically is to slow their hands, you know, wait, just kind of pause a second, because if it's not a fastball, then it must be something slower. Whether that's a breaking ball, a cutter, a splitter, or whatever, you know, they're not sure, but they know it's something different. So matching the spin of the changeup to the fastball, I think is something that is so easy to do, such a quick adjustment, and can pay dividends for all pitchers from the youth level all the way up. And the only caveat to that is if a pitcher throws both. A lot of pitchers throw a two-seam and a four-seam fastball. Then I would try my best as a pitcher to match my changeup with the last fastball I threw. So if the last fastball I threw was a a four-seam, then I would just, then I would throw a four-seam changeup. And same with the two-seam. So that's something I think is really, really important. Throwing it with good, I mean, I'm not going to get into the arm speed stuff. All the things that have kind of been really beaten to death in the baseball community, like throw it hard, throw it with arm speed. Sure, make it look like your fastball. Well, that like from the mechanical and delivery standpoint, yes, you want to make it look like your fastball from the delivery standpoint. But I think something that gets missed is the spin of that changeup. It's not a huge game changer, but that little 5%, 10%, you know, increase in swings at that changeup, that's great. Oh, and lastly, any changeups that's down is probably going to be really effective now to nine out of 10 hitters. 
Mike Trout, you throw a pitch, a changeup down, be careful. <laughs> all right. It might go 500 feet because that guy annihilates changeups down, but he's an anomaly. All right. He's an extreme anomaly. Youth pitchers should throw their fastball, their changeup at the knees or below the knees, right down the middle of the plate. It's not going to go down the middle of the plate all the time. Very often it's going to slide to one side or the other. And that's fine. But the key is to keep it down in the zone. I wouldn't worry about in and out. Keep it simple and effective and think down. That's the key is keeping it down at the knees with less than two strikes and then below the knees with two strikes, as long as it's not three, two, right? If it's three, two, then you got to treat it like a less than two because you don't want to walk them. And then lastly, how do you get a pitcher comfortable throwing a changeup? You got to have them throw it. And if you're waiting for the games to get your changeup feel, well, that's not going to get it done. You got to include it in the throwing routine, in the throwing program and other drills. So pitchers, I recommend youth pitchers and especially high school pitchers throw a changeup in their throwing routine every third throw or maybe even every other throw, depending on it, how much they use it in a game. If they're a high volume changeup pitcher, every other throw should be a changeup in their throwing routine. And this is important to get the feel for that grip. It's a kind of an awkward feel for a lot of pitchers, but they got to throw it. They got to throw it. They got to throw it. One caveat to that is distance. You start getting long toss distances, 100 feet, 120 feet, 150. When you start getting out there, you don't want to throw the changeup grip necessarily like at 200 feet for older guys, 300 feet. I think you want to keep it definitely can be further than 60 feet and definitely can be out there 100 feet. But I think that's when you start maybe to kind of put in the back pocket until you come back in and you're done with your long toss part of your program. But you got to throw the changeup grip a lot. You got to throw it, throw it in scrimmages, throw it a lot in scrimmages early in the season. And that's how you get better at uh, the changeup. Fantastic. And I do really appreciate that uh, little nugget about matching the changeup grip to the fastball grip, like the four seam versus a two seam, because I, I don't think many coaches even think about what kind of changeup grip they should have for their pitchers. So appreciate that. So let's move on to base running. First of all, would you say you are more of a uh, kind of a smart, aggressive base running style? Or are you more of a conservative base running style? Smart and aggressive. I really like, I think the three keys to base running, just to kind of sum up my philosophy is you got to develop three types. You got to develop your base runners. There's three steps. You got to get quicker base runners. You want your, your base runners to be quicker, not necessarily top end speed, but quicker. You want them to accelerate fast. There's a really well-known strength and conditioning coach. His name's Mike Boyle. He's out in Massachusetts that he started to train his athletes with 10 yard sprints and 15 and 20 yard sprints. And he found that was the best way to increase quickness and speed. I thought that's great for baseball because the bases, I mean, youth level, it's only 20, 20 yards, right? 60 feet. It's only 20 yards at the, you know, at 90 feet. That's not much further. You got 30 yards, 20 yards, no sense in training these 60 yard sprints. I'm not saying they can't get in condition and round bases. That's good to learn how to round the bases efficiently, but you want to get your players to accelerate fast, get them out there running sprints. I think you should run 10 to 15 yard sprints at every single practice as a team on the line. But here's one thing I would do with that. I'd have a coach be the pitcher. I'd have them go from being a right-handed pitcher to a left-handed pitcher. I'd have them stand right where the mound should be, if not on the mound and have them do 10 to 15 yard sprints, put a cone, have some competitions with it. You want them to accelerate and react quick. That's what baseball running is all about. It's about running and accelerating quick. So you got to get them quicker. Number two, they got to have a scoring mindset, Rob. First base gets you zero runs. Second base gets you zero runs. Third base gets you zero runs. Home plate is the only base that counts. And I understand you can't get the home without touching the others first, but they have to understand that the only thing that changes the scoreboard is getting to home plate. And if you get that instilled in your players, they're going to be thinking like, I'm not satisfied. I'm not complacent here at first. All right. I'm not going to round first on a ball in the gap and round it and be happy with a single, come back and point to the dugout. I'm all for sharing and celebrating with your team, but man, that ball is still getting thrown in or maybe in some cases still getting picked up. I saw an ML, MLB guy the other day take a 
he had a like a routine single what looked like a routine single and he did not stop and he was safe at second now again you don't want to run wild into outs but i think how you can train that is by having scrimmages team a team a scrimmages intra-squad scrimmages or scrimmages against teams against coaches you know and like let the other coach know like hey we're going to be aggressive don't take it personally we're going to be aggressive and they shouldn't take it aggressive they should love it because then it challenges their defense but you just set up an environment where they are they have to you know you kind of want them to be aggressive and then learn what their limitations are and they can learn what their limitations like mm, that, that ball got in the gap but i don't have the speed to get the second on that that's not a double for me or that ball got somewhere i used to think that was a single but you know i should be looking to make it a double make the defense stop you don't stop yourself so you got to have a scoring mindset step two and then number three you got to teach your players players got to learn to make quick accurate reads this is where experience comes in super handy quick accurate read the other thing is like mindset scoring mindset that's something you can just kind of cultivate by just explaining it and kind of getting them into that mindset getting them faster you don't need experience in in a game to get faster you can do that all in training but making quick and accurate reads is so important and that takes experience so you want your players to learn to make quick and accurate reads and how you do that is by creating drills or scrimmages that facilitate quick and accurate reads especially drills where you can go through a high volume of situations that require quick and accurate reads so give me an example of one of those types of drills that you're talking about all right here's one that i i love this drill because again i'm huge on efficiency i'm huge on authenticity and it's got to be safe this covers all there's eight steps to a perfect drill we can get in, into that another time maybe another podcast there's eight steps to a perfect drill it's got to have eight things to be perfect one of them is efficiency experience is a volume thing but you want experience to be authentic to a game if you have a high volume if you have a drill that gives a high volume of experience in an authentic kind of like environment that looks like a play that's going to actually happen in games now you're just totally accelerating the experience this is so important for young coaches and even coaches that are in college high school pros understand there's 99 percent of baseball drills i see at all the levels are not as nearly as efficient as they could be and they're wasting a lot of time it also makes it boring for the players so the drill that i like for teaching aggressive reads so you have one of your catchers gear up and get behind the plate i think catchers are going to benefit more from blocking balls and receiving and blocking and they're going to help your team more by doing that than they will maybe by getting a, a quicker read and you can always rotate your catchers out so they can at least get out there for half the reps or whatnot so you have a catcher behind the play have the rest of the team make up three even groups one group at first one group at second one group at third you have one live runner at each base you have a coach he should have two buckets of baseballs or more remember the more buckets you have the less you got to stop and they're going to stand out by the mound maybe a little in front of the mound depending on their arm strength and from there the coach will make a pitch to the catcher and the drill works best if the coach the pitcher he throws a variety of pitches breaking balls change-ups fastballs but also more importantly some that go straight to the backstop some that bounce off the plate and something that's super important to keep in mind he better throw some strikes in there too because you don't want that autopilot mode on players do not make accurate decisions in game time if every drill is autopilot mode they have to have some strikes be thrown in there because if they think everything's going to bounce and it's bounce and run bounce and run bad pitch bad pitch run you got to mix it up obviously it's not going to be the same as a game because you want to get reps so you're definitely not going to do an exact ratio in the game not very many pitches you know they're going to be five they get caught in a youth game before one bounces away or 10 or 15 but in the drill you can do kind of like a 30 you know like maybe like half of them get caught or maybe you know a third of them get caught and the other two thirds i've used this where i do one third of them get caught for a strike or a ball right you know but the catcher catches it and the runners aren't advancing and the the other two thirds bounce off the plate or go to the backstop so you got your three live runners and they're going to get into their secondary lead when the pitch is made and from there they're going to react as quickly as possible to the outcome of the pitch so if the pitch gets away from the catcher they're going to have to decide real quick hey i'm going to move up a base or not if the catcher receives it cleanly they may get right back to the base you know so they don't get back picked then you're going to also have those that bounce how 
far away does it bounce from the catcher, right? So you have variation. You have some that just get right by the catcher. How about some that bounce off the backstop and come right back to the catcher? So all these start, you do a high volume of this and you have three runners going at the same time. You get a lot of live looks. No hitter. You don't need a hitter. The competition have like the slowest reacting runner from each group. You know, he goes and maybe at the end, uh, you know, maybe he bear crawls or the winner of the group, the, you know, the guy who tallies up the fastest reads, the fastest reaction time, as long as it's accurate and he doesn't get out or he doesn't make a bad read. Maybe the winner from each group, uh, you know, goes over and gets a Gatorade or, or water or something. They get a break while the other, the rest of the players maybe do like a, a 90 foot bear crawl or something like that. You can add some competition or you don't have a consequence or whatever. You just compliment the winners and, and you'll praise them a little bit. I wouldn't make a big deal out of it, but competition is always good. One thing that's um, important to keep in mind, if you have the bases loaded, Rob, and there's like less than two outs, then the runner at first base and the runner at second base and then the runner at third base are going to react to balls in the dirt a little differently. Most of the time, it's going to be the same reaction. It's either they're going to stay at the base they're at or they're going to move up. But there's going to be times where that ball gets away from the catcher three or four feet. Well, that runner at first base, he's probably going to second because that throw to second base is the furthest throw of all the bases. In the 60 foot, the high school and up, that's 127 feet and some change. So that's 127 foot throw. A youth ball, whatever the hypotenuse of that is, I don't know off the top of my head, but I know it's a lot further than 60 feet or 70 feet like it is to throw to third base. So the run then, so you have the runner at second base is going to be a little less aggressive, right? Because if the ball, depending on how far it gets away, the, the throw to third base is closer than second. And then lastly, the runner that's trying to get to home, he's got to make sure that ball gets far enough away from the plate because he's got to run and that catcher at the base, well, hopefully the pitcher's covering home. That's a short toss or the catcher can grab the ball and get back that five, 10 feet quickly. So every read's going to be a little different. I would recommend running this drill two different ways. Bases are loaded. So you react to the pitch as if you were the only runner on base. Now, why is that important? Because if you're at first and the guy in front of you at second doesn't go because he thinks that ball's not far enough away, but you're at first and you think it's far enough away to go to second, but the guy at second is trying to get to third and he goes, that's a shorter throw. I'm going to hold up. Plus I'm already in scoring position. So he's maybe a little more careful. I don't know. You know, so what happens to the guy at first and he stops because the runner at second doesn't go. And then there's that kind of that backup effect. But I would run 50% of the drill. Yes, the bases are loaded. Read the guy in front of you. Of course, if you're the runner at third, you don't have to read the runner in front of you. Then I would run the other half of the drill. Hey, you're the only runner on base. It doesn't matter if the guy in front of you goes, you read it as if the base in front of you is unoccupied. I love that because it allows kids to get multiple types of reads and whether it's bases loaded or whether they're pretending that there's nobody else, even though there are bases loaded. Yep. So I think that that's all fantastic. So one more topic that I'd like to talk to you about. I understand that you are a fan of the Pareto principle or the 80-20 principle. So tell us what the 80-20 principle is. Well, the 80-20 principle is definitely not a baseball thing, although it absolutely can help baseball coaches and players when they're planning their training and their practices. He was an Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto. He kind of, you know, he was growing stuff and noticed that like 20% of some of his crops would present or I would say produce 80% of the yield. And he started looking around at all things in life and he started studying this and he goes, wait, 20% of inputs are really responsible for 80% of the outputs or 20% of our work, our actions, our drills are responsible for 80% of our results. So to kind of make it simple for a kind of a layman's terms is not everything we do, especially in baseball, but in life will add the same amount of value at the end or add as much. So like in baseball, you may have 15 or 10 training drills, but each one of those is going to affect the outcome of the upcoming games or the upcoming season a little more, a little less, or in some cases, a lot less or a lot more than the others. So each drill does not impact the game as much as the other. Now, some are very similar, right? Some are going to have a very clear, they're going to be very close in value. So I think it's very important to understand this. I read the book, The 80-20 Principle. I recommend everybody, this is like a guy I'd love to see the ABCA get out there, Richard Koch. He's kind of like the contemporary leader behind the 80-20 principle. He's kind of the contemporary like author and stuff 
And I'd love to see him get out there and kind of tie it into baseball for that. Just like I'd like to see like Jocko Willing. He's a kind of a well-known Navy SEAL who's gone into leadership, talking about leadership and, and he runs a kind of a leadership program and business now. I'd love to see him get out there. In fact, before I move forward, I want to say that's probably the number one book, Rob, I recommend all coaches read. It's not a baseball book, but it's written by Jocko Willink and it was called like uh, Leadership Strategies and Tactics Field Manual. And it jumped to the absolute top of my list right there. Top three all time coaching books. And he doesn't mention the word sports or baseball in there, but it's all about teams. It's all about team culture. It's all about discipline. It's all about everything. And it is written so well. And if you want fancy, really fancy words and all this complicated jargon, that's not your guy. All right. This guy's a really, really smart guy, but he's not going to sit there and try to come across like he's a triple PhD guy. He's going to give it to you so you can understand it. But, you know, I don't know Jocko. I don't have any connection with the book. I just know I want to give youth coach something that'll really move the needle. And that right there, that is like the team culture, the 80-20 rule. The team culture is absolutely the main needle mover for coaches. It is the biggest thing. It is one of those 20% items that'll move and move 80%, 90% of your results and outcomes. So really in baseball specifically, the 80-20 rule highlights the importance of focusing on the skills, the movements, the routines, the drills, the strategies that produce the highest return on time. So like team culture at the top. And now when I say highest return on time, we got to have a measurement for that. And the measurement is scoring runs and preventing the other team from scoring runs. And then also team culture, which doesn't directly show up on the scoreboard, but definitely is the major scoreboard mover, believe it or not. So what strategies, what movements, what things can you say to the team? What team conversations, what activities, drills can you do that are going to have the biggest impact on the scoreboard and on your team culture? Because they're all going to vary. And this is so important before we start as a coach. So for example, like team cultures, number one, that's going to be the biggest needle mover of anything you can do as a coach. I don't care if you know the swing as well as anybody. If you're a better swing technician than Ted Williams, it doesn't matter. If you don't have a good team culture, you could be the best pitching coach in the world. That stuff's not going to really matter if you don't have the foundational team culture. So that stuff does matter, but it isn't as big. So the 80-20 principle is basically prioritizing the drills, the things we say to our team. So for example, here's one. I used to coach with a guy who was, he was actually a Southern California coach of the year for high school. And he could see so many things out there on the field when the team messed up or did well. He was just a really, really bright mind. And, and he would get the team together at the end of practice or at the end of the game. And he would go over like the 10 things that we need to work on. And every time I'd be like, this guy's right on. But at the end, I go, Tim, you're spot on. All 10 things you're saying are awesome. But you know what? Maybe it would be a better idea to take the two that you think are the most valuable things that the players, the two absolutes or the three absolutes that you really think are really going to help change, whether it's the team culture or pitching or defense or whatever, base running or whatever. And you just really focus on talking to the team about those two or three and just leave the others off because it starts to be the law of like, you know, diminishing returns. I, and he thought about it and he goes, you know, you're right. And and it wasn't that I was trying to, I was just trying to give him the best and I was trying to help out. And I just saw it. I go, man, everything you're saying is spot on. I love listening to you, but these kids are checked out after five minutes. You're going for 20. The last 15 are awesome, but the kids are checked out. Adults have a longer attention span. So I like it. And I like baseball. So I told him focus on the two or three things that are the biggest, most important things and just be okay with leaving the others off the table. Another, in fact, we would also do things like and I coach with another coach that would spend 30 minutes working first and third offense and defense or sometimes an hour. And then we would spend an hour on defense, base running and pitching combined. And during the season, first and third happens once a game, twice a game. And, and isn't something that's going to be a huge needle mover, although it might cost you some runs. But it, if your team can't hit and you can't pitch, it's not going to matter if you can stop a first and third offense or not, because you're going to get boat raced every time or you're or, you know, you're not going to score any run. You know, the 80 20 rule is about understanding what are the most important things. So the, the finish it up. Rob, here are the five I want to tell the youth coaches about that I've kind of, this is my five that I think are the five biggest things and, and they're, they're pretty obvious, but I think these are the five, I would call them the 
I'd change this rule to 90-10 for this. 90% of your time should be allocated to these five things. You got pitching, base running, hitting, you got fielding, and then you got team culture. All right. So you have pitching, hitting, base running. And when I say fielding, fielding can is obviously throws, ground balls, and fly balls. Throws, ground balls, and fly balls. So I kind of group those together. So when you start getting into like bunt defenses and first and thirds and rundowns and this stuff, that's where you got to be a little kind of like relays. Relays are good, but I'd rather have my guys learn how to field ground balls and come up throwing or, or catch fly balls and less time on working relays. Don't spread out your defensive time evenly between working on relay throws and catching ground balls and fielding ground, catching fly balls and fielding ground balls. You see what I mean? So it's about going, what's going to be the biggest difference maker and not all drills and things that you do are equal. Would catching, like the catcher position, would that be part of the uh, 80% of results that we should work on? Oh man, man, you're good. You're good. That one is, <laughs> the catching one is like, kind of like in its own league, like you almost want to have your catchers kind of off like in their own defensive practice because they're so important. I mean, catching at the youth level and all the way up is the most important position, especially at the youth level and the high school level. It's the most important defensive position. I take pitching out of it. I think of pitching as an offensive position because the offense has the ball in every other sport and pitcher has the ball. They have to have an offensive mindset. They need to have an attack mindset. But on defense, the other eight positions, yes. So let's 80-20 defense. The 20%, one of the big, what would definitely fall in that 20% of the most valuable, what Pareto used to call, Vilfredo Pareto used to call the trivial many versus the vital few. Like the what are the vital few things versus the trivial many things we can do? So catching would be the absolute most vital probably in all of defense. So that would be like within the defense and you could break it up into like subcategories, right? Exactly. That's a really good one, Rob. You know, we could get into this longer. You could break up pitching into 80-20 and go, okay, what are the 20% of pitching that brings 80% of the success? Mm-hmm. Let me say this though. The 80-20 is not an exact number. It's not meant to be. And everybody who talks about this will say it's not an exact 80. So some listeners might be like, 80-20, how's it? How do they know it's exactly? It's not. And I think that's a fair answer because I maybe I presented it like, oh, it's going to exactly be 80 No, it's kind of a guideline. It's kind of an approximation. So it might be 90-10. I think it might be 95-5. It may be 70-30. But the idea is that, like we just said with catching, catching is going to cost your team or prevent more runs on defense than any other position. So having a catcher that can block, field, frame, especially at the youth level, get strikes. Now, as the automated strike zone comes into play in the major league level, framing and stuff is going to go by the wayside. It's going to go, you know, it's not going to be important because it's either a strike or it's not. It doesn't matter what the catcher does with it. But the youth level, the high school level, framing pitches, stealing strikes is huge. Blocking pitches, throwing runners out, holding the running game, that's going to pay off way more. That is a vital few. That is the 20 of the 80-20. That is one of the things, probably the main thing in the in the defensive side of the, just like the hitting approach. The hitting approach is the number one most important thing I think you could teach to hitters. So that would definitely be in the vital few versus like a hit and run or something like that. I just don't think that would be something I spend a lot of time on. Now, what about when we're talking about pitching and that's obviously part of the 80% that moves the needle, like how do we work with pitchers in practice to move that needle, even though not everyone on the team pitches? So pitching part of that 80%, but not everyone on the team pitches. That's a good one. You know, the pitching has to be done with some creativity. Defense doesn't have to be all done simultaneously. So you could be doing offense for all your position players. You could be in batting practice, hitting in the KHT work, other drills, and also then be kind of pulling pitch away one by one instead of having them maybe go to a certain station of your batting practice or whatnot and pull them away to do some shadow work, some pitching mechanic work or strength and conditioning, getting the leg stronger or med ball tosses, rotational throws or some plyo ball work. So you could kind of bring branch them off a little separate. So there's definitely some creativity. So my point is like not all base running necessarily has to come during the base running designated time or drill. So again, it doesn't have to be exact. So, you know, you're kind of have to kind of work with like, say, catchers might be pulled off to the side during 
covering something else and not just while ground, ground balls are being taken. Okay. So that's where you get really like that question to me from you is a very like kind of high level question. Like that would be something as a youth coach, I probably wouldn't get overly concerned with that. That's kind of, you're thinking more like an elite coach would kind of a higher level coach. Good question nonetheless, but I think it's more of kind of an approximation and get creative, make sure that you're, well, you could break down the catcher and say, well, I want to make sure he works on blocking, throwing footwork and stuff like that. And then go, okay, how do I fit that into the practice and make it so it's definitely something that's covered maybe every practice. Again, the 80-20 is not just about every practice. It's also about what you cover over the course of a week, over the course of a month, things like that. So how it plays out, it has a lot of variability with the coach. And so there's flexibility there. It's the idea that certain things you just have to go, how much does this impact the scoreboard and or the team culture? And then adjust your practices and trainings and co- player meetings and team meetings and things like that to fit. So the ratio is is kind of closely lined up and aligned with how much it's going to impact those things. And so last question for you. So if pitching is pretty important, something we should be covering a lot in practices, you mentioned earlier about the importance of leading, pitchers leading with their hips and glutes. So do you have a drill that you would recommend for coaches to teach that? You know what? The most well-known or probably the easiest one to find online, the video is going to be older. It's a drill that Tom House used to use. And I think he, he gets a little bit of a bad rap sometimes in the baseball circle. But I'll tell you what, I've sat there and studied under him and listened to him. I'll vet as I'm listening and then kind of, you know, I don't just take anybody's word. Like, it's like, hey, you got to prove to me what you're talking about lines up and adds up and makes sense. My point was he had a lot of great things to offer and I think kind of gets forgot about. He's kind of gone into working with quarterbacks in the NFL and all those guys like Drew Brees and Tom Brady. But one of the things he used to do with players and you can go online and look it up, Tom House, I think if you type in hip and fence drill, he'll it'll show the pitchers, they'll lift their, their leg, like, you know, their leg lift and then they push their hips, their front hip, they push their front hip and their glute out. Well, let me back up. They line up about four to six inches away from the fence. All right, any fence. And they line up about four to six inches away, turn sideways as if the fence was on the, if they were a pitcher in the stretch, right? So they're in the stretch and the, the fence would be like where the plate on the, the side of where the plate would be. Obviously it's only four to six inches away. So it's right there. It's not 45 feet or 60 feet away. It's right there. So they're turned at kind of a 90 degree angle, perpendicular to the fence, lift up the knee lift, the leg lift. And then you push the hip and glute forward, the front hip and glute. And, it, and what the idea is that should touch the fence before your shoulders touch. So if you start as a pitcher starts to go forward towards the plate, down the slope, down the mound, he should not be leading his body with his shoulder and his upper body. It shouldn't be like a tall and fall. Yeah. And it shouldn't be a drop and drive. It should be kind of a gradual drop, but the hip and glute lead out in front should hit the fence before anything else, before the elbow or the shoulder. And if you YouTube it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Another thing to show that really good is who did it awesome. This is youth coaches can definitely use this and all levels can use this. Go look up Pedro Martinez and Mariano Rivera and watch their mechanics. You can type up Mo's delivery or Google Pedro's um, delivery, maybe their full name and then hit delivery or mechanics. When they're going down the slope, when they're striding out, when they're halfway down the mound, what part of their body is out in front? And it's not their front, it's not their foot, it's not their shoulders, they're not leaning with their head, it is their hip and glute. And this creates a a nice center of gravity staying back a little bit. But again, this is where I used to teach it wrong. Back to your one of your original questions, your initial questions is I used to teach it, you know, kind of dip, kind of drop a little as you went forward, not drop and drive, but kind of drop a little bit and go to stay back. This this hip forward kind of sets that up. So it's easy to ride out that back leg while not sacrificing momentum. So go look up those pictures. It's a great drill. You can do it any other way, any any sorts of way. There's a lot of great coaches. I'm sure listening right now that can come up with maybe a better way than a fence. The fence is just at every baseball field and it really gives that feel like, all right, I'm hitting it with my hip and glute rather than my upper half, my upper, my shoulder and my arm. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. We've hit a lot of different topics and a lot of different angles on those different topics. So I think it's a little bit of something for everyone. All right. Hope you enjoyed part two of my interview with Bo 
slash brainer. The 80-20 rule is probably a game changer tip for many coaches. It might be an interesting exercise to go back to your past practice plans and evaluate them to see if they followed the 80-20 principle. And if they didn't, don't get down on yourself. Instead, rejoice. Yes, I said rejoice because that means you should see your team improve more quickly going forward if you start structuring your future practice plans following the 80-20 rule. And if you've already been doing the 80-20 rule in planning your practices, then keep up the good work. As a side note, this just stresses how important and how underappreciated a head coach's job is. The head coach is the one who plans the practices and in planning the practices, he or she is the one who determines how the team grows and how fast. So let me just take a minute to encourage you head coaches for the thankless work that you do. You are helping to shape the next generation, not just with baseball or softball skills, but also with life lessons. And as Bo said, your team culture is super important and it will rub off on the kids. So if you gently steer kids away from laziness and defeatist attitudes or help kids handle failure better or help kids to stop blaming teammates when things go wrong, you're going to be helping these kids off the field as well. So thank you for stepping up and being that positive influence in their lives. All right. That was my interview with Rob Tong over at the Youth Baseball Edge podcast. And Rob, I also recommend you guys subscribe to Rob's email. He sends out articles every once in a while that are really good. And one thing besides being very inquisitive and asking great questions, Rob does an outstanding job of understanding the 80-20 principle. In fact, about the 80-20 rule and how he uses it and how he recommends it being used in practice. And interestingly enough, I didn't even know he had this article on the 80-20 rule. I knew of Rob Tong and I knew of the 80-20 rule for many years, for almost 10 years now. I've been studying it and I've listened to Rob's podcast for, geez, almost three years now. And I didn't know he actually had an article tucked away on his website that goes into the 80-20 rule and the 80-20 principle in terms of baseball. So we discuss it a lot here and I'm going to put the link to that article, to Rob's article in the show notes. Go check that out. And thank you for being here. And again, I know I say this a lot, but it does fire me up to continually see the amount of listeners each week grow. And that tells me that there's coaches out there that really want to learn, that they like what they're hearing here, that they're utilizing. And I get feedback. I get emails from coaches. I get things on Twitter, on the side, some direct messages. Coaches sharing with me frequently the success they're having using this out in their practices, using this. Now, I know it works because I've seen it work over and over with countless different teams, but it's very encouraging to see you guys taking it out there and having success with it. Now, some of this stuff is going to give you or bring you success in terms of building up the team culture, in terms of building up the skills of your players and getting better players and winning more games and having more fun and having less discipline issues. Some of this is going to come faster than others. That's how life works, right? We all know that. So some of this stuff, you'll see an instant impact. Some will take, it'll kind of phase in. That's just how it all works, especially the team culture. That's more of a phase where a skill or a drill change can definitely increase the abilities much faster. But it does fire me up to have and hear from you, have coaches listening and have players listening and have coaches reach out to me and share with me that they are having success with this and they're fired up because of it. So that's awesome. And I'm going to keep bringing it every Tuesday here, the 8020 Baseball Podcast. We're going to go into the year 2021 and I think it's just going to keep getting better and better. And I look forward to helping all of us in the baseball community grow together and be better coaches and just make the youth sports world a better place. Until next year, until 2021, which is next week, take care of yourselves, take care of your health, take care of your families, and take this information and go out there and make the youth sports world, specifically the youth baseball world, the baseball world in general, even if you're a professional coach, this all applies all the way down college 
college, high school, and into the youth world. Take this out there. Take this information from this podcast and go make it a better environment for our youth. Give them a better platform to be prepared for life and hopefully even get a scholarship out of it or a chance to play professional baseball. All right, you guys. I'll see you on the flip side. Bye. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. Thank you.